friends, we're continuing a series of messages about our God, who he is and what he does. Tonight we're looking at the word gracious, right? Our God is gracious. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24, page 1490 in the Bibles provided for you. Familiar story, of course, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, as we say sometimes. Luke 15, verses 11 through 24. This is God's word to us. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, the younger, the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you will kill the fattened calf for him. My son, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Beloved in Christ, our God is gracious. If you've been a follower of Christ for any length of time, you undoubtedly have picked up that truth about God. Our God is gracious. A simple description of that truth we heard this morning, if you were worshiping at the Christian Reformed Conference grounds, in fact, you said it this morning if you were there, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Psalm 103. That's grace right there. Now, I know last week we talked all about how God is righteous, always does right, always is fair to us. But there's an asterisk on that statement. It's not like the Aaron Judge home run record. It's like the Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire type records. Like the PED, performance enhancing drug asterisk in front of that statement. God is always fair to us except when we're talking about God's grace. It's then that there's a beautiful asterisk in front of that statement. And it's a whole lot better asterisk than the other type, right? Our God is gracious. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Philip Yancey says it like this, grace is unfair. We deserve God's wrath and get God's love. Deserve punishment and get forgiveness. We don't get what we deserve. The Apostle Paul put it ironically, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. We work hard for wages which vanish at death. We do nothing to deserve grace and get life eternal. If you want fairness, he writes, try a religion like Hinduism, which says we may have to go through thousands, even millions of incarnations before paying for all of our sins. It's unfair that a human rights abuser like Saul, Paul, gets forgiven. Or a murderer, adulterer like David, King David. Or a thief hanging on the cross who has conversion just before death. Yes, it's unfair. Gloriously unfair, I would say. And it's a good thing, beloved. But let's go back a second and try to define grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Maybe you remember that acrostic for the word grace from some Sunday school teacher way back when. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches given to us. Or we can think of grace as the way the book The Pilgrim's Progress so realistically portrays the Christian life. Pilgrim. Practically every time he faces a choice in life, he makes the wrong one. He chooses bad companions. He makes evil detours all along the road. But in the end, amazingly, he ends up in the celestial city. Why? Because of God's grace. Every time he fell down, God picked him up again, dusted him off. Again and again and again. God's grace for us. Grace is amazing. Think of um, Victor Hugo's novel or the Broadway show created from the novel Les Miserables. Near the beginning of the book, a kindly bishop, after discovering that the lead character, Jean Valjean, stole precious and expensive silver from him, he not only refused 
to punish him, he lets him keep what he stole and gives him more as well. He lavished more silver upon Valjean. Grace, totally, amazingly unfair. Philip Yancey, again, when trying to define grace, offers up this gem. We need to let it soak in, he writes. There is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And nothing we can do to make God love us less. God's grace allows him to love us infinitely. He writes, human society runs by ungrace. It ranks people. It holds them accountable, insists on reciprocity and fairness. But grace, by definition, is unfair. Maybe you've gotten grace handed to you on a platter at some point. Back in the days when libraries charged fines, maybe some still do, kept the book too long, brought it back three days late, and the librarian told you, oh, you're fine. No fine. We have a three-day grace period. You do? Who knew? Or you brought back the rental car after being caught in a traffic jam and you knew you'd be paying an extra day's fee. So you went to the counter late, frustrated, anxious about making your flight and said, I know, I'm late. What do I owe? Nothing. Nothing, the delightful person behind the counter said. We have a one-hour grace period. You do? Who knew? And those, by the way, are great places to start your definition of grace. Even though you're supposed to pay, you don't have to. Amazing. Grace, think about it, it's, it's God's amazing gift to a sinful world. And he's so great at it. He, he writes the asterisk of grace upon our lives in bold print with the biggest sharpie marker you ever did see. And he keeps going over it for us. As the Apostle Paul explained, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. How about that? There's something, there's something again, amazing about grace the deeper the sin, the greater the grace. John Blanchard writes, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there's sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there's overwhelming grace. God has grace in bountiful supply. He has to dealing with people like us. It's all throughout scripture. You know that. Yancey writes, the notion of grace keeps hitting you in the face. All God's stories make the wrong person the hero. Lazarus, not the rich man. The good Samaritan, not the Jewish rabbi or the priest. And of course, the prodigal son, not the responsible older brother. The parable of the prodigal son. It's a story of grace you just can't beat. Story of grace. Sheer, beautiful, unadulterated, glorious, amazing 
grace. The son reaches an age where he's had it. He wants to go. He wants to get away from his dad. Give me my inheritance and let me live my own life. Forget all this family stuff, these family obligations. I want to live my own life. And the father gives him what he wants. And he goes off and he squanders it all. He wastes his newfound wealth. He spends it all in one place, the store called Wild Living. And when it's gone, a famine hits the whole country. Now, we don't know a lot about famines in our country. I suppose the Great Depression was one of those times when it was a little like a famine figuratively. Or the Dust Bowl of the 1930s when 500,000 Americans were left homeless. But lately, we don't really get famine. We haven't suffered one lately. And so it's almost impossible for us to understand it either. That, that's what I mean by, by, by get it. We don't really get famine. Although, what just happened with Hurricane Ian, there are some people, quite a few really, who, who've lost everything and, and probably don't know where their next meal is coming from or where they're going to live and so on. But for the most part, we up, up north here, we don't really get famine. But this younger son did. He had no money, and then famine hit. And he began to be in need. And the thing you really need when you're in need is a family. When there's no money and famine hits, the truth is you can't make it alone. You need your family, your blood relatives, your friends, your club, your team, your church. You need your family because what happens, as the story makes clear, is that if you don't have family, you will die. You will starve to death. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, the text says, but no one gave him anything. He was starving to death. And so he at last came to his senses. For a while, as we might say, he had lost his mind. He lost all common sense. He lost the ability to make wise decisions. He lost his mind. But he came to his senses and thought about his father, thought about his family, thought even about the hired men his father took care of. Even they were treated in a way like a family for they were provided for. So now, in his right mind, he came up with a plan. I'll go back to Dad and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me, make me like one of your hired men. And that's what he did. He got up and went to his father. And now here's where the grace comes in, as you know. The grace of God in all its magnificent splendor. It shines through a lot in God's word, but this is one of the places where it shines the brightest. It is brilliant here, almost too intense to look at. And here's the grace like a lightning bolt. It blasts into the frame of this picture. While he was still a long way off, 
his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Can you picture it? A father running. A father running. People, grown men, 50-plus-year-old men. That's what I'm guessing his age was. They don't run. Now, in shape people do. People are training for things who, for some reason, actually like running. That's not me. And there are a number of people, I think, that are like me. You don't see a lot of 50-plus-year-old men running apart from doing an exercise routine. My dad always said there's only two times he runs to get away from a fight or if he's trying to catch a bus. Is, there's a third one, though, you see. There's a third one. This father runs with the wind of grace at his back. His legs are powered with grace. His arms are outstretched with grace. His eyes are tearing with grace. His heart is welled up with grace, with mercy undeserved, with forgiveness undeserved, with favor undeserved, with compassion undeserved, with that bear hug undeserved, with that kiss of grace undeserved. And the younger son recites the lines he has practiced and prepared for this meeting Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You know the father's response, right? He says, well, son, that apology wasn't quite good enough. You think about it and you try again. <laughs> oh, man, how many times did I say that to my own kids growing up? You think about that, then you get back to me. Try again. But this father doesn't say that. Of course not. This father's bounding to his son on legs of grace. Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Let's have a feast. My dead son is alive. My lost son is found. Let's celebrate. Oh, amazing grace. Undeserved. Forgiveness, undeserved. Reinstatement into the family, undeserved. Celebration, undeserved. His father's wealth, undeserved. Can you imagine the relief? Undeserved relief. That's what the grace of God, our Heavenly Father, does for us. Provides us with undeserved relief. We sin. We walk away from God. We go off on our own and do our own thing. And God, in his grace through Jesus Christ at the cross, forgives our sins, welcomes us home, joins us into his family, and is preparing a celebration to end all celebrations one day when we meet him face to face. And it's all undeserved. This is how God treats us, his undeserving children. Of course, the rest of the story teaches us that lesson through the older son. The older son, who doesn't like asterisks at all. Everything has to be legal and fair for the older son. 
The older son who doesn't care all that much for all this grace the father is lavishing on his brother. The rest of the story teaches us that the grace lesson is not supposed to be lost on us. Jesus is teaching us that in this parable, he is showing us the grace of the Father, incredible, amazing grace. And in the last verse, he convicts us that this kind of grace is supposed to be part of the way God's children act as well. How they treat their families, their blood relatives, and of course, their brothers and sisters in Christ, and even those who are not yet their brothers and sisters in Christ. The Father says, Jesus says, God says, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. The older son forgot about the asterisk of grace that hovers over him. He'd gotten so used to it, he, he forgot it was there. And the father reminds him, that asterisk is right there over you too. So come on, let's celebrate. We have to. We have to be glad, so happy because your brother's back, dead, now alive, lost, now found. Treat him with the grace you see me treating him with and that I treat you with. Come on in now. And there it is. There it is, the period, the period at the end of the story, the sentence at the end of the chapter. There's no epilogue. There's no where are they now follow-up. How did the story end? Did, did the older brother come in? Were the older brother's eyes opened? Did he see the asterisk finally above his head in the mirror? story leaves us there. So many of us, like the older brother we are. I've been reflecting on, on words of Frederick Beekner recently as he describes grace. He writes about it this way, after centuries of handling and mishandling, most religious words have become so shopworn, nobody's much interested anymore. Not so with grace, for some reason. Mysteriously, he writes, even derivatives like gracious and graceful still have some of the bloom left. Is that true, beloved? Beekner suggests it's, it's true generally. People who don't get a lot of grace or understand it all that much, or who have not received saving grace from God yet, even they like hearing about grace, even they hunger for grace, for stories about grace. But did the older brother, did the older brother still hunger for it? Or had that asterisk for him lost its luster? And if not for him, what about for some of us older brothers and older sisters? Has it kept its bloom for us? Has that dark, sharpie ink faded a bit? What Beekner was saying was that grace is one of the few words that can connect us to those who need Jesus. 
And if we've forgotten our own story of grace, a story that goes on in our lives every single day with every single sin we commit, if we've forgotten that, Hebrews 12, verse 15 reads, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That's the NIV. A little easier to understand is the English Standard Version. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. But you know what the NIRV says? It's in our pew racks, the colorful children's Bibles. It says this. Be sure that no one misses out on God's grace. Be sure that no one misses out on God's grace. Everyone has to see, has to hear about the asterisk of God's grace. Our God is gracious. Look what he did at the cross with Jesus. Imputed our sins to Jesus and imputed Jesus' righteousness to us. Completely undeserved grace. The older brother actually forgot that, didn't he? How could he? The story doesn't say. But maybe as we look at our own stories, the point is we need to be asking ourselves, how could I forget? How could I make so little about such a great big deal? How could I let what God did for me fade? That asterisk is an indicator of the most important thing that ever happened in my life. Grace from a gracious God given to me. So if we've been sleeping, the story wakes us up every time. Be sure that no one misses out on God's grace. That's right. I fell asleep a minute and forgot about the grace. In my own life, how could I? Yancey once more tells the story of his friend Tom. Tom, whom we hadn't seen in 15 years. And Tom was a hard-drinking, lovable party-goer who stopped going to church soon after college. Last year, Yancey writes, Tom's live-in girlfriend decided one weekend she wanted to attend church because of some crisis that she was going through. And Tom reluctantly agreed. And that Saturday morning, he sat down and started playing his guitar. He was a musician. Thinking of church, he resurrected three hymns from his distant muscle memory played them. Those are beautiful. What's the music? His girlfriend asked. Tom explained the words to the hymns that he had remembered back from his church days. Well, Sunday, the next day came, and they chose a church to go to, and to Tom's utter astonishment, that Sunday, the congregation sang all three of the hymns he had played the day before. It so rattled Tom that he completely turned his life around. Listening to him tell the story, Yancey couldn't help laughing in surprised joy. He writes, I have a memory of Tom, 
I have a memory of Tom so drunk that he fell over while trying to roll a bowling ball down a bowling alley. We had to pull him away from the ball return channel. And now here he was, weeping, telling me how God had changed his life. Think of the coincidence of those three hymns being played the one Sunday that Tom dropped into church. That, he writes, was grace. Beloved, God awakened Tom, you see, like he has all of us. Younger brothers, older brothers, younger sisters, older sisters. Every one of us. Every story is a story of grace. We have been awakened with the grace of Jesus Christ. We dare not forget that. We dare not lose sight of that. We dare not miss the opportunities to share that. Our God is gracious, gracious to us. And he tells us, be sure that no one misses out on God's grace both in what you do for them and what you say to them. Amen. Father in heaven, you have more reasons than anyone to withhold grace from us. Instead, you overwhelm us with it because of Jesus. Forgive us for being underwhelmed by your grace, as we sometimes barely trickle it into the lives of the family of God. Forgive us for anything we have said or done or thought that was not spilling over with grace, with love undeserved. Forgive us for not seeing, running, showing compassion, hugging, kissing each other with grace as we move forward as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us move like you do moving into each other's lives with favor undeserved. Help us to move into and touch the lives of others, believers and unbelievers alike, with grace. Not a thought, not a word, not a decision, not an action left untouched by your grace. That's our prayer for us, Lord God. Please make it a reality. We beg of you. In Jesus' name, amen.